When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Tonight on The Readout. President Trump is still liable for everything he did while he was in office. Didn't get away with anything yet. We have a criminal justice system in this country. We have civil litigation. And former presidents are not immune from being accountable by either one. Even Mitch McConnell knew back in 2021 that Trump can face criminal charges. Well, now Trump's lawyer is making the absurd argument that a president can commit all kinds of heinous crimes and remain immune from prosecution forever unless he's impeached and convicted. Also tonight, Trump's rhetoric is having dangerous consequences as both special counsel Jack Smith and Judge Tanya Chutkin are targets of swatting. And Trump's big hope for 2024? He says he hopes the U.S. economy crashes sometime soon, which, of course, would leave huge numbers of his MAGA supporters jobless and broke. But we begin tonight with a hypothetical question. Could a sitting president sell pardons or military secrets or order the Navy SEALs to assassinate a political rival and never face any accountability for what is clearly a criminal act. It seems like an absurd question, right? Well, not if you're Donald Trump's lawyers trying to defend your client for his attempts to overturn the 2020 election. Their take is that short of facing impeachment in the House and conviction in the U.S. Senate, a sitting president is given absolute immunity to commit whatever criminal act he or she wants. Could a president order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival? That's an official act in order to SEAL Team 6. He, he would have to be and would speedily be, you know, uh, uh, impeached and convicted before the criminal what prosecution. What if he weren't? There would be no criminal prosecution, no criminal liability for that. I asked okay. you a yes, no, yes or no question. Could a president who ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached would he be subject to criminal prosecution? If he were impeached and convicted first. And so, so your answer is, is, no. is My answer is qualified, yes. There's a political process that would have to occur under us, the structure of our Constitution, which would require impeachment and conviction by the Senate. I've asked you a, a series of hypotheticals about criminal actions that could be taken by a president and could be considered official acts. And I've asked you, would such a president be subject to criminal prosecution if he's not impeached or convicted? Requirement. And your answer, your yes or no answer is no. I, I believe I said qualified yes if he's impeached or convicted first. Yes, you heard that right. Asked multiple times by one of the three judges on the D.C. Circuit Court, Trump's lawyer, John Sauer, said a president could take a page from Vladimir Putin's playbook by using the U.S. military like a squad of hitmen and face no repercussions. Sauer claims that anything short of upholding such an absolute immunity for a president would open a Pandora's box of consequences from which this nation might never recover. Understandably, 
Attorney James Pierce, the lawyer representing special counsel Jack Smith's office in the case, was taken aback by the exchange. What kind of world are we living in if, as I understood my friend on the other side to say here, a president orders his SEAL team to assassinate a political rival and resigns, for example, before an impeachment? Not a criminal act. President sells a pardon, resigns, or is not impeached? Not a crime. I think that is extraordinarily frightening future. Pierce also argued it would set a dangerous precedent if Trump doesn't face accountability. Never before has there been allegations that a sitting president has, with private individuals and using the levers of power, sought to fundamentally subvert the Democratic Republic and the electoral system. Uh, And frankly, if that kind of fact pattern arises again, uh, I think it would be awfully scary if there weren't some sort of mechanism by which to reach that uh, criminally. But don't just take it from the special counsel's team that a president does not have absolute immunity and that once out of office, they can face criminal prosecution. That same argument came from Trump's own counsel during his second impeachment trial and was even brought up during today's hearing. After he's out of office, you go and arrest him. So there is no opportunity where the president of the United States can run rampant in in January, the end of his term, and just go away scot-free. The Department of Justice does know what to do with such people. There is only the text of the Constitution which makes very clear that a former president is subject to criminal sanction after his presidency for any illegal acts he commits. Donald Trump was in the courtroom today described as mostly muted during his lawyer's arguments, though he appeared agitated at times during the special counsel's turn. And perhaps for his client's amusement, Trump's lawyer made sure to mention in his rebuttal that Trump was winning in the polls, which caused Trump to become visibly animated, vigorously shaking his head in agreement. So now it's up to the three-judge panel to decide where this goes next. They could decide that they don't have the jurisdiction to make a decision at this point, which means the case would be kicked back to Judge Tanya Chutkin. They could rule against Trump's claims of immunity, which would again bring the case back to Judge Chutkin. Trump would then likely either ask the full D.C. Circuit Court to hear the appeal or appeal the decision directly to the Supreme Court. But in either case, neither court has to agree to take it up. Finally, the three-judge panel could rule in favor of Trump which would likely cause Jack Smith to file his own challenge to the Supreme Court. Joining me now to unpack all of this is Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland, a former member of the January 6th Select Committee and a constitutional law expert, luckily for us. Congressman Raskin, thank you for being here. I just want to remind our, allow our audience to know a little bit more about John Sauer. He is a lawyer. He's based in St. Louis. He once served as a solicitor general for that state. He joined Trump's legal team recently. And as Missouri's solicitor general, He took part in a last-ditch effort to keep Trump in power by adding himself on to a Texas uh, fight to try to get the Supreme Court to toss out the votes in several swing states. So just so that we understand him. I want to play for you one of the arguments here, because Judge Henderson, one of the three judges, asked whether or not the oath the president takes to ensure the laws are faithfully executed applies to this president. I think it's paradoxical to say that his constitutional duty 
to take care that the laws be faithfully executed allows him to violate criminal laws. Now, we're at the motion to dismiss stage. The government has charged the specific criminal laws. We have to assume they're true. My response that I think would be to emphasize what Chief Justice Marshall said in Marbury, which is that they can never be examined by courts. That naturally includes a criminal proceeding. This gentleman also clerked for Antonin Scalia, the late Antonin Scalia. Your thoughts on whether or not the president must faithfully execute the laws or whether he can commit crimes despite taking that oath. Well, the whole reason why the president uh, has an oath written for him in the Constitution itself is to bind the president to uh, uphold and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Uh, The reason why Congress has the power to impeach the president, but the president doesn't have the power to impeach the Congress, is precisely because of the suspicion of would-be monarchs and dictators among the founders. And we were given the right to impeach a president, remove a president to try to preserve the republic. But it's been understood for decades and decades and decades that the president, of course, has to face criminal culpability if he engages in murder or rape or violence or assassination or attempting to overthrow the union. And in fact, as you pointed out, We got uh, Trump's lawyers to admit that at several points. That became part of their argument. If there's a real problem with uh, Trump, they said during the Senate impeachment trial, he can, of course, be criminally prosecuted afterwards. And that was also the hook that Senator McConnell hung his hat on, saying, well, we know that Donald Trump was actually morally, ethically responsible for everything that happened that day. But he said this is not over because he can be criminally prosecuted later. So now, like a three-card Monty, they want to turn around and say, well, if you're not impeached and convicted first, you can't be convicted later. And I think the entire country and certainly the entire judiciary, even Clarence Thomas, can see through that one. And if I could just add one other thing, almost as a point of personal privilege, uh, if I could, Joy, um, when I heard Donald Trump make this argument, all I could think was they're saying they have a right to engage in political assassination of their rivals. And if you can kill one person, certainly you can kill several of them. Well, let's say then they feel like they might be convicted in the Senate. Uh, but if they, could, if they could just knock off three people who were going to vote to convict him, then he'd be all right. Then they go ahead and murder them. Then he can't be convicted. Then he can't be prosecuted. So <laughs> I, I honestly believe that at this Supreme Court is not so corrupted that we'll, it will fall for an argument as corrupt and pernicious as this one. Right. And the thing about listening to this is it was there was one moment where it seemed that uh, Mr. Sauer agreed that in this strange instance where the president and no president, by the way, who's been impeached has ever been convicted. Let's just be clear. Even Andrew Johnson, who's, you know, they had him dead to rights. He still survived by one vote. So as long as you have enough senators to acquit you, apparently, according to Mr. Sauer, you are above the law. But at one point, they kind of seem to take that back. This is Sauer um, arguing that he kind of argued that, yes, you can be convicted. If you're convicted in the Senate, you can be prosecuted. Let's just play that first. Let's start with that. This is cut two. Your position is, if President Trump had been convicted after his impeachment trial on incitement of insurrection, if he'd been convicted, then this prosecution would be entirely proper. 
which I would say that if you were impeached and convicted for the same and similar conduct, then that would authorize a subsequent prosecution. So we have many other issues with so this is, prosecution. Is that a yes? So I don't. Because I think you said in your brief that that impeachment for incitement of insurrection is based on the same or related conduct as that which is in the indictment. Is that yes, that? yes, yeah, I agree with that. So if he had been convicted by the Senate, then this prosecution would be entirely proper, correct? Well, I would not phrase it that way because there's lots of other problems with this prosecution that we've raised. He then didn't seem to stick by that. Then later, Judge Pan says, you're conceding that presidents can criminally be prosecuted under certain circumstances, right? He said, specifically, if they're impeached and convicted, I think that's the main language of the impeachment judgments clause, Judge Pan. And isn't that also a concession that a president can be criminally prosecuted for an official act because presidents can be impeached for official acts? And then he kind of went inaudible, blah, 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 blah. And then later, at the very end, they got into a back and forth where he seemed to take all of that back and be like, you know, this case is too flawed. I really didn't mean it. So he didn't even stick by the idea that he presented that if convicted, they could be prosecuted. Well, he's obviously a horrible lawyer, but it's a horrible (laughs) argument. The argument they're trying to make is that um, is a misreading of the Constitution. The Constitution says that a president can be impeached by the House of Representatives, convicted by two thirds in the Senate and then removed from office, but still can be prosecuted and tried and convicted and punished in criminal court. So it's very clear the framers wanted to insist on the absolute criminal liability of presidents in all cases. They flip it over and say it stands for the obverse proposition that if you are impeached, as Donald Trump was, and not quite convicted, he beat the constitutional spread 57 to 43, we were 10 votes short. Then at that point, you can't be criminally prosecuted again. Nobody has ever tried to make such an outlandish uh, argument before. And as we're saying, it would lead to the most perverse consequences, like the president simply assassinates his rivals and then kills the requisite number of House members and senators that he needs to kill in order to prevent himself from being impeached and convicted. And then presto, he's uh, got complete immunity and impunity. And he's a dictator. He's Vladimir Putin or he's President Xi. And of course, that's what Donald Trump wants. And I mean, the thing about this is so it's, it's shocking to me that a, a man walked into, a, court, into a, a district court and made these arguments. But to your point, if Donald Trump were to win this on this matter, that would mean, as you just said, that if he came back into office, he would have a license to kill. He would have a license to use the military to kill whoever he wanted, and at least according to his lawyer, to steal state secrets and to sell pardons. That is not a president. That is a dictator. That's absolutely right. And I think that the argument in this case, Joy, is so outrageous, so extreme and so autocratic that it might even shock the most obsequious sycophants to Donald Trump on the Supreme Court to look seriously at Section 3 of the 14th Amendment and the Colorado case. Because do they want to have blood on their hands if they're the ones responsible for putting Donald Trump on the ballot against the clear text of the Constitution, and then, God forbid, for some reason, he's able to get back into office and then, well, God help us all, because who knows what would happen at that point. I think that this actually... um, activates the court to take a very serious look. And I'm not just talking about the liberals and moderates, but even the most extreme conservatives on the court to take a serious look at Section 3 of the 14th Amendment and why it's in the Constitution.
Yeah, indeed. Uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin, thank you very much. Much appreciated, as always. And up next on The Readout. And delay we go. Trump's legal strategy comes into focus as he tries to take advantage of Nixon-era guidelines about presidential immunity. Stay with us. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. The opposing counsel used the phrase above the law, saying that an immunity doctrine for criminal immunity would place the president above the law. I would just direct the court's attention to what the Supreme Court said at Nixon against Fitzgerald in the context of civil immunity. They described the allegation that immunity sets the, the official above the law as, quote, rhetorically chilling, but wholly unjustified. In today's hearing, Donald Trump's legal team made several references to another former president, Richard Nixon specifically a 1982 Supreme Court case where Nixon was personally sued by a Defense Department whistleblower who claimed he was wrongfully terminated. The court ruled in Nixon's favor, stating that a former president is immune from lawsuits and in civil cases and that such immunity extends to all acts within the outer perimeter of his duties of office. The ruling did not, however, mention criminal charges nor how overturning a Democratic election so they can stay in office forever counts as any part of the perimeters of a president's official duty. Meanwhile, the special counsel also cited Nixon, although a completely different case to bolster their argument. Referencing U.S. versus Nixon, the 1974 Supreme Court decision that forced the president to comply with a criminal subpoena for his White House tapes in the Watergate scandal. Joining me now is Paul Butler, former federal prosecutor and MSNBC legal analyst, Mary McCord, former acting assistant attorney general for national security and co-host of the Prosecuting Donald Trump podcast, and Nick Ackerman, former Watergate assistant special prosecutor. And Nick, I am going to start with you since we did make a Nixon reference. What did you make of the dual uses of Richard Nixon's former cases by uh, the counsel for uh, Jack Smith's office and the counsel for Trump? Well, it's just amazing how much Richard Nixon uh, is still haunting us after all these years, 50 years uh, since Richard Nixon. Um, but I think it's pretty clear this whole business about um, immunity is really total nonsense. If you go back to the 1974 opinion where the Supreme Court unanimously ordered Richard Nixon to produce his tapes, it's pretty clear throughout that that the Supreme Court is basing that ruling on the notion that the president is not above the law. 
that the president has to answer the same in the criminal system as any other citizen. In fact, just recently, the 11th Circuit, in the case overruling uh, the judge in Southern Cal uh, Florida on the classified documents case, made it quite clear uh, that Donald Trump has to be treated just like any other defendant in the criminal system uh, facing charges in federal court. So it seems to me that we've got a whole different situation with respect to a criminal charge. Uh, and when you come right down to it, this case has one and only one purpose for Donald Trump, and that is to try and delay his day of reckoning um, and try to keep from having a jury decide his guilt. It's darn well that once a jury is selected and once the witnesses start testifying, including his own vice president, who's going to testify against him, his lawyers that were in the White House are going to testify against him, that at that point, he is completely gone and he's on the way to the big house. He knows that, and that's why he's trying to delay this as much as possible. Uh, Mary, I have to, since you did uh, work in the national security realm as a prosecutor, get your take and your response to uh, Mr. Sauer's argument that a president could steal national security secrets, check, Donald Trump did that, uh, could sell pardons, and could use SEAL Team 6 to murder their political opponents or arguably any American they wanted or anyone they wanted uh, and not be subject to prosecution ever, ever, ever. I think that's fundamentally nothing that the that the framers could have ever expected or anticipated. It's true that uh, a president uh, does have substantial sort of um, leeway to to engage in national security and foreign affairs under the Constitution, but that is not leeway to commit crimes such as abusing and misusing the military uh, for political purposes or, or to commit murder. And I think the Nixon cases that were cited show also the important distinction between civil cases for money damages like the Nixon versus Fitzgerald case and criminal cases like the case that the special counsel back then was investigating and prosecuting against the Watergate burglars. The court made clear that there is um a need for a president when in office to be able to make decisions without constantly worrying about being sued civilly for money damages. And that's why in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, the court held that in view of the special nature of the president's duties, it's appropriate to recognize absolute immunity for acts that the president engages in within the outer perimeter of his official duties. But in marked contrast to that, the Supreme Court rejected absolute immunity for Nixon complying with a subpoena to provide tapes that he had, White House tapes, as that uh, the, had been subpoenaed as evidence in that criminal prosecution. And what the court said there, and I'm going to look over here to read it exactly, is that neither the doctrine of separation of powers nor the need for confidentiality of high-level communications without more can sustain an absolute unqualified presidential privilege of immunity from judicial process in all circumstances. So the court, I think, made this distinction and, and the, and the, dramatic questions that Judge Pan asked today about ordering SEAL Team 6 to murder a political opponent, I think really illustrate why there can't possibly be that kind of immunity. It's nothing our framers would have ever expected. It's nothing that should be countenanced under our Constitution.
Yeah, I mean, Paul, you know, we were treated to everything from, you know, should George W. Bush be able to be prosecuted for lying about uh, the cause of going to war in Iraq? Should you know, Barack Obama be prosecuted for dropping drones uh, strikes? Um, you know, the Clinton case was brought up that he was, you know, spared prosecution for lying about Monica Lewinsky, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But when, I, when I'm listening to it, I think of the immunity thing. I think about the police immunity, where they have this broad immunity to, to, to kill. But if a police officer goes home and kills his wife, that immunity ends there. They, they, they don't have a broad immunity to just go kill anybody they want, kill their neighbor because their dog was barking. They suddenly can be prosecuted. And even in some cases, like with the George Floyd killers, they can be prosecuted even when they're committing, when they're, you know, acting in their official capacity. That's exactly right. And that's based on a doctrine called statutory immunity, which the Supreme Court made up as opposed to the impeachment, which is part of the Constitution. And so Trump's argument that he can't be prosecuted unless he's first impeached by the House and then convicted by the Senate, it goes against the text of the uh, for, uh, of the um, Constitution. It right. really flips that argument on its head. The text says that if a president is impeached by the House and then convicted by the Senate, that's the most that the Senate can do to him. Right. But then goes on to say that he or she can be prosecuted in a court of law for a crime. It also goes against the a constitutional design, the whole point of separation of powers. Right. So the president doesn't have this absolute immunity. And finally, Joy, it goes against history. We could talk about another Nixon incident. Remember, then-President Ford pardoned Richard Nixon. That, right. He pardoned him because there was never an understanding that a former president couldn't be prosecuted. Nixon uh, was pardoned precisely to save him from a criminal prosecution. Right. And Nick, I mean, that I think is a key point, right? Because a pardon implies guilt. It implies that you did the crime and therefore you're being pardoned for your criminal acts. Nixon did famously say when a president does it, it's not illegal. But that wasn't even true for him. And by the way, no president who's been impeached was ever convicted, has ever been convicted. So you'd almost have zero chance of being prosecuted if you become president. This is for you, Nick. Oh, yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. I mean, it just is a totally different system. The impeachment proceeding is a purely civil matter to remove somebody from office. That's all it is. They're just deciding whether he's committed high crimes misdemeanors and whether there's a basis to remove him from office. That's totally separate from a criminal proceeding. Uh, even the example that was given today actually was probably one of the best examples that was given by the government with respect to Watergate, where Richard Nixon, in his official capacity, was calling the CIA or having his chief assistant call the CIA in order to call call the FBI to get them to stop the investigation into the Watergate burglars that would have led to the White House. Those were all official acts, as Donald Trump would phrase it. But that is the key tape, that tape with Richard Nixon and his aides talking about doing those official acts is what resulted in him resigning at the end of the day. And it right. certainly would have resulted in him being convicted of various serious crimes including obstruction of justice. We were prepared throughout that prosecution and that investigation to indict Richard Nixon. The only mm -hmm. reason we did not indict him was because the House was actively looking at impeachment. We were simply holding back to let the House do its thing. And our plan was to move in afterwards. And within a couple of weeks after 
Richard Nixon resigned, he was pardoned by Gerald Ford. Yep. And, and that's the only reason. I don't need that it, pardon. Yeah. You know, I, I've got immunity. That didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, it, and otherwise, he would have been prosecuted, just like Donald Trump is being prosecuted. Uh, Paul Butler, Mary McCord, Nick Ackerman, thank you both very much. Thank you all three very much. Coming up, as tempting as it is to just ignore Trump's inflammatory rhetoric, his words are having real-world consequences for the prosecutors and judges he's been targeting at his rallies and on social media. More on that next. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Hey everyone, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? We're back with another installment of our special series with Pod 2024, The Stakes. I'm talking to experts about both Joe Biden and Donald Trump's records on specific policy areas during their time as president. This week, a biggie. AbortionEveryday.com founder Jess Valenti on the stakes of reproductive rights. Conservatives, Republicans would like us to believe that this is something that voters are sort of super polarized on, that we're evenly split down the middle. And that's just not true. Voters want abortion to be legal, even in red states, even in purple states. That's why we're seeing attacks on democracy. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. Trump's dangerous rhetoric is ramping up against his perceived enemies, including two key figures in his 2020 election case. Both those figures, Judge Tanya Chutkin and Special Counsel Jack Smith, also happen to be the latest victims of swatting. On Sunday, police and fire trucks showed up at Judge Chutkin's home after she appeared to be the target of an attempted swatting attack. Swatting is the colloquial term for filing false reports to the police to set off a threatening or potentially dangerous response by officers. Incidents of swatting have become more common in recent years. Special Counsel Jack Smith, who is overseeing the prosecution of Trump in two federal cases, was also the target of an attempted swatting at his Maryland residence on Christmas Day. According to law enforcement sources, someone called 911 and claimed that Smith had shot his wife. Luckily, police were waved off by Smith's protective detail. Last week, Attorney General Merrick Garland raised the very issue of dangerous rhetoric and its consequences. Just yesterday, we arrested and charged an individual with threatening to kill a member of Congress and his children. This is just a small snapshot of a larger trend that has included threats of violence against those who administer our elections, ensure our safe travel, teach our children, report the news, represent their constituents, and keep our communities safe. These threats of violence are unacceptable. They threaten the fabric of our democracy. The attorney general did not share the name of the Congress member who received those threats, but did share that in the final months of 2023, the department investigated and charged individuals with making violent threats against FBI agents, federal judges, a Supreme Court justice, presidential candidates, members of Congress, members of the military, and election workers. Several bomb threats were also made against courthouses across the country. Joining me now is Anthony Coley, MSNBC legal analyst and former senior advisor 
to Attorney General Merrick Garland. Anthony, it is good to see you. I mean, we're seeing this ramp up, and it's hard to imagine that it, it is not that it is not related to Donald Trump. Right. That's exactly right. This is extraordinarily dangerous rhetoric, Joy. This is stuff that undermines the rule of law. It weakens our democratic institutions, and it, it actually pulls us apart at a time when we should be trying to come together to solve big issues. Now, it's important to note here, zooming out for a second, why Donald Trump is using this rhetoric, right? And, and, and it's clear to me, and I think um, to you and your viewer, viewers, that he's running for president to stay out of prison. Correct. Right. And so um, his problem, the problem for him is that he's got an extraordinarily um, uphill battle in the court of law. And so in his mind, he's resorted to use this incendiary rhetoric on the campaign trail to try to um, impact the legal outcome. So for him, these cases and um, the campaign trail, they're one and the same. They're inextricably linked. And we see this in this rhetoric. So he says things like, and you talked about this, I think, once before, he says things like, I, um, I, uh, they're, they're after you. I'm just standing in the way. And, or he says, um, I got indicted because of you. Just putting aside everything that he did um, to uh, cause these prosecutions himself. The last thing I say about this is, is the bottom line, he is running um, for president, as I said, to stay out of prison, but he's going to do anything and everything necessary to do that. And that means um, this is a no holds barred fight yeah. for him. Yeah. Right. And so we're seeing him trying to delay, delay, delay this case. You talked about this a bit in your previous mm -hmm. segment to try to get to January of next year. Right. Right. So he can then order it dismissed. But in the meantime, he is using this deceptive incendiary rhetoric to impact what happens on the campaign trail to uh, affect legal outcomes. Let me play uh, two sound bites. The first one is something that Donald Trump said last night. He posted this on Truth Social, which definitely sounds like a threat against the current president. Take a listen. Joe would be ripe for indictment. We have a Manchurian candidate in Joe Biden. We have to get him out. By weaponizing the DOJ against his political opponent, me, Joe Biden has opened a giant Pandora's box. And he has to be careful because that can happen to him also. The next president, whoever that may be, has a statute of limitations that go back six years. That's a long time, Joe. You have to be very careful. You know, the cuts are really weird. But let's now look at uh, something that he said to your point. Right. Uh, this was actually the, the day after uh, the special counsel unsealed the 37 count indictment against him. This was in June of 2023. Mm -hmm. Here he is. This vicious persecution is a travesty of justice because in the end, they're not coming after me. They're coming after you. And I'm just standing in their way. Here I am. I'm standing in their way. And I always will be. So to your point, it's a poisoning the jury pool, right? right Trying to get right. any future jury to think this isn't really about him. It's about me. But then also this sort of open threat that right. if he gets back in, right. he's going to use the judiciary to go after President Biden, right. maybe more than that. Right. It's alarming rhetoric, but it's also classic Trump. This is a man who is known to have an enemies list, yes. right? This is a man who says his favorite Bible verse, and I don't really think he reads the Bible, but he claims his favorite Bible verse is one of Old Testament retribution, an eye for an eye. What makes this, this rhetoric so troubling right now, Joy, is that if elected, he would— um, uh, 
possibly undermine decades and decades of American jurisprudence where facts and law determine prosecution. Now, I want to be one, one very clear here about Joe Biden. Joe Biden had nothing to do with this prosecution. Right. This was a decision that was made um, independently by special counsel Jack Smith. He exercised his own prosecutorial discretion. And the to, grand jury. Right, right, to determine whether or not to bring um, charges in this case. And I was at DOJ at the time when the attorney general made this decision. Mm -hmm. He put distance between himself as a member of Joe Biden's cabinet and this decision to reassure the American people that whatever decision was appropriate, that it was indisputably determined by facts and the law. Yeah. So the bottom line here is that if, if Donald Trump wants to blame anybody, mm -hmm. he needs to look in the mirror. That's right. He was the one who ignored the facts, who worked around the law, and now he's on the cusp of criminal accountability. And you know what? One way to stop to avoid being prosecuted, don't commit crimes. Right. It's a right. good way to stay out of jail. And I right. wonder if that Bible verse came from 2 Corinthians, the one that he wrote. <laughs> Anthony Coley, thank you very much. And up next, have you been enjoying the Biden economy with its rising wages, low unemployment, and plummeting inflation? Well, Somebody wants all that goodness to end. Lickety split. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but his initials are Donald Trump. We'll be right back. <laughs> As he so often does, Donald Trump said what he really means about the American economy. In a friendly interview with former Fox host Lou Dobbs on the My Pillow Guys streaming network. I can't believe I just used those words. Trump gave his prediction for the next year. We have an economy that's incredible. We have an economy that's so fragile. And the only reason it's running now is it's running off the fumes of what we did, what the Trump administration. It's just running off the fumes. And when there's a crash, I hope it's going to be during this next 12 months, because I don't want to be Herbert Hoover. It's incredible, but it's also just fumes. Okay, so a few things to unpack here. He says he doesn't want to be Herbert Hoover because Hoover was president during the stock market crash of 1929, which led to the Great Depression. So to be clear, Trump is 100% calling for economic calamity, just not on his watch. Number two, while it's true that voters do have concerns about the economy, there's no meat to Trump's claim that the economy is fragile. After all, the economy exceeded expectations in 2023. And last week, the U.S. got yet another strong jobs report, capping off a year of steady gains for the jobs market. Although Trump has been trying to magically sink into existence a Biden crash since the 2020 election, and his mega flank in the House is certainly doing its part to help. With the far right once again threatening to blow up a proposed government spending deal to force a partial shutdown next week, or else Republican Speaker Mike Johnson could suffer the same fate as Kevin McCarthy and lose his job. Because apparently now one of the litmus tests for the MAGA Republican Party is willingness to crash the economy, just as the party is fully pro-insurrection three years after the January 6th attack. Take Louisiana Republican Clay Higgins, for example, who tweeted that he'd brief Mike Pence on how it was an FBI inside job and use their bond over Jesus to prove it. That coming just days after Elise Stefanik, the fourth highest ranking Republican in the House, called January 6th insurrectionists hostages because Republicans are desperate to pivot away from the one issue they don't want to talk about, abortion. But a funny thing happened on the way to finding a reasonable alternative to Donald Trump on that topic. Since the Supreme Court sent abortion rights back to the states overturning Roe v. Wade, Republicans seem to think, well, actually, how about a federal ban, including the 
reasonable former South Carolina governor Nikki Haley. Ambassador Haley, your name was invoked. Would you support a 15-week federal limit? I would support anything that would pass. I will sign anything where we can get 60 Senate votes. Coming up after the break, with less than a week until the Republican Iowa caucuses, Nikki Haley is still trying to explain what she really means about a federal abortion ban. With less than a week until Iowa's Republican presidential caucuses, Nikki Haley is still trying to sell herself as an alternative to Donald Trump and Ron's six-week abortion ban DeSantis on the subject of abortion. Last night, she told Iowa voters at a town hall on Fox that the fellas just don't know how to talk about abortion. Whatever 60 senators bring to me, at whatever level, we will support. Because the only way we're going to do it is if we find consensus on the federal level. And I think we will find consensus on banning late-term abortions. And I think we'll find consensus that no state law should say to a woman that gets an abortion that she's going to jail or getting the death penalty. That's where we will find consensus. Joining me now is Matthew Dowd, MSNBC senior political analyst and a former Republican strategist. Uh, Matt, it's great to see you. Uh, let me read you just really quickly. This is a piece from a New Yorker article about what does seem to be uh, a, a case of a woman in Texas dying as a result of not getting an abortion. Um, none of the records from when Yenny was alive acknowledge that given her multiple underlying conditions, an abortion would have increased her chances of survival. Only the autopsy put it plainly. Pregnancy creates stress on the heart and can exacerbate underlying heart disease and cause hypertensive cases, the medical examiner wrote, in naming pregnancy as a factor in Yenny's death. Some of the medical professionals involved in it, briefed about her care, have been haunted by the question of whether sins of omission were created, were, were committed. They have asked themselves if responsibility for her death resided in part with the new laws that suppress free discussion, both among doctors and with patients, about therapeutic abortion, had fear of legal repercussions, trumped compassionate care. This woman had what would have been considered a late-term abortion. She didn't have one, and she died. Is that going to become a story that haunts Republicans going into this election? Yeah, I think it's going to become multiple stories in this. I mean, and in my own personal story from years ago, the trauma that happens in the course of this because of state laws is going to be repeated over and over and over again, whether it's the death of a, of, of somebody or it's just the, the what a couple or a woman has to go through in the midst of this, whether she has to flee the state, can flee the state, whatever it happens to be. And this goes to your lead in on this is the Republicans don't seem to care who gets hurt, right? Like thousands of people died from COVID because of Republicans and Donald Trump's stance on this. Thousands of people are dying from gun violence because of a refusal to do anything with common sense gun reform. And now they pass and push through a policies on, on abortion that are resulting in same trauma, same victims, same all of that. They don't care. Yeah. And the thing about it is Nikki Haley is supposed to be the alternative, right? But she has said she would have signed a six-week abortion ban where she's still governor of South Carolina, same as uh, Ron DeSantis. Uh, she has said she would sign a national six-week abortion ban if it was handed to her. She'll sign whatever can be passed. She has no concern about that. She is on the side of more and more guns in the streets. She's on the same side as Trump on most of these issues. So what is supposed to be her unique selling proposition? Well, that's the that's the thing about people like Nikki Haley and I would put in people like Kellyanne Conway. They think it's a communications problem. They right. think there's a marketing issue here. It's like a restaurant who's poisoning people. And they said, I think the problem is we need to change the color of the menu and rearrange the tables. That's what they think the problem is when the problem is you're poisoning people. And in this case, 
you're hurting people in this. And it's this idea that somehow marketing our words will fix a fundamental problem, which is taking away a freedom for over half the population of the country. You know, the, the thing I have heard from some people, though, is that Donald Trump is such a danger to democracy that they would take a Nikki Haley just because she would be terrible on policy. She would be terrible for women, terrible for people of color. I mean, she thinks she's not sure where slavery happened, but she would stay. She would leave office when her term was over. She wouldn't threaten to kill uh, her opponents or jail them um, and that her normality as a Republican is enough. Do you think there are enough of those Republicans? It does look like she's getting close to New Hampshire. Do you think she has a shot at just being the normal alternative, not a great alternative, but at least normal, and maybe defeating Trump in a primary? Well, I would say there's no normal Republicans today. So it would be the non-Trump person, because I yeah. I actually think in many ways that that what Nikki Haley presents is actually in some ways worse than Donald Trump because we understand who Donald Trump is. But Nikki Haley puts on this faux idea that she's somehow a leader and somehow has integrity and enables and agrees with Donald Trump every single step of the way. And that to me is, it, it, you know, Donald Trump is who he is. We can see it. We have it. He talks about it. But Nikki Haley puts on a halo and then walks around and does exactly what Donald Trump wants. I don't think there's probably room in the Republican Party for somebody non-Trump, but it's probably only 20 or 20 percent, 25 percent. The problem Mickey Haley has is that every state after New Hampshire doesn't allow independence or really restricts independence from voting. Donald Trump's going to win Republicans in New Hampshire probably by 25 points. And the only way she's competitive is what ultimately doesn't happen in South Carolina, in Nevada, in Texas, in Alabama, in the aftermath. So my view is if she surprises in, in New Hampshire, mm -hmm. there's not a path forward where a bunch of independents are going to come out and vote in Republican primaries. Yeah. Guess who we didn't talk about because he has no shot. The governor of Florida. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's amazing. He, he may be out of this race within the next two weeks. Yeah. Uh, oh, indeed. And, and has probably no future in Florida either. Matthew Dowd, I think we're running over. Thank you very much. Appreciate you. And that is tonight's readout. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app.